The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. Today we are entering into a chapter that is very challenging. In fact, all of my commentators that I I read have made note that this is the most difficult chapter in the entire book, if not in the entire New Testament, to interpret and to understand. So, here we go. Uh, Today we're going to attempt to go through the entirety of this chapter because it is one long discourse. In fact, this is the longest continual teaching of Jesus in the entire book of Mark. Interestingly, this speech that Jesus gives to his disciples is patterned very similarly to the farewell discourses of some of the very famous Old Testament figures like Joshua and Samuel and several others. This discourse, it takes place on the Mount of Olives, so we typically traditionally call this the Olivet Discourse. I'd encourage you to follow along beginning in verse 1, and we'll read the entire chapter. And as he came out of the temple... One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these these things be? And what will be the sign all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial... And deliver you over. Do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for the women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now, and never will be. 
And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves, when he leaves home and puts a servant in charge, each with his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Now, before we jump in here, I want to look at a few truths, consider a few specific things that we need to understand before we examine this text so that we can do so well. First of all, we need to approach all scripture with humility. It's, it's vital that we come to the Bible recognizing this is God's perfect and eternal word, and we can't take our presuppositions and, and our thinking and try to set it over the top of the text and make the text fit what we already believe. Rather, we have to come to the text and let it shape us. Secondly, when we come to a passage that is highly disputed, like this one is, we need to remind ourselves just how limited and finite our minds really are. There's a great deal here that no scholar seems to agree on. And what that tells me is that God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts greater than our thoughts. So today I'm going to do my best to approach this text, uh, but I guarantee you there are some things that I just don't know and I have probably gotten wrong. Now, I know this would be a challenging text. Uh, I knew before we even started this church, when I planned to go through the book of Mark, this text was on the horizon. So over the last two and a half years, I have been studying it and anticipating it. And I can confidently say now that I have more questions than I did when I began. Now, the third thing I want you to remember before we jump in is this. Although there are some very, very challenging things for us to understand in these verses, there are also some very clear things. And oftentimes, I think we focus too much on the things that are not clear at the expense of the ones that are. So today, we're going to focus more on those things that are clear because those are the ones that we can guarantee we know how to apply in our lives this morning. Fourth, I want you to remember that 
and recognize the, the arena of theology where we probably disagree most as a church is the arena of eschatology, which is the study of end times and last things. There's probably a great deal of variety in the, in the seats right now in terms of our understanding of what it will look like when Jesus returns. And I think that's okay. And it's likely that as I preach through this message, some here will have different interpretations about the return of Christ than what I'm going to speak about this morning. And I know that's going to be the case, and that's absolutely okay. Once again, we need to approach these things with great humility. However, I want to encourage you, if you have a different perspective or have thoughts or questions, I always love to hear about those and discuss them with you. So please know that there's an open line of communication. Let's talk about these things. What better conversation could we have than being about the Word of God? And fifth and finally, before we jump into the text, I want you to remember that hermeneutics, which is the study and understanding of the Bible, is is really important, that we don't leave behind the rules of understanding the text once we get to a challenging set of verses. And one of the first rules of hermeneutics is to seek to understand what these words would have meant to the original audience. What did the original audience understand Jesus to mean? What did these four disciples mean when think Jesus means when he's speaking to them? What he, did he mean to them directly? What did he mean to Mark's audience when it was first written? Those are very important, so we're going to look at it primarily through that lens today, and secondarily through the lens of how does this apply now to us? So there's a lot more that we could, we could do to prep ourselves, but I think we're ready now to jump in to see what the Lord is teaching us through these verses. There's a lot here, So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this text through the following outline. Five points. Point number one, the departure. Point number two, the promises. Point number three, the final sign. Point number four, the second coming. And point number five, the enduring command. Let's begin with the departure. In the first two verses of this chapter, we see Jesus leave the temple for the very last time. He will never return. But... As they're leaving, the disciples, they they begin to look at the beauty of these buildings and they begin to marvel and and speak about how awesome these buildings that are part of the temple complex really are. Now, I grew up, as many of you know, in Kansas. There are no big buildings like this in Chanute, Kansas, where I grew up. There's nothing like this. There's maybe a four-story building, the Tioga. I used to work in the restaurant there. But every time I go into the city, into Manhattan, I still am filled with awe. I look up and this is incredible. I'm not used to it still. Now these buildings that these people were looking at were the most beautiful buildings in this region of the world in that time. In recent years, excavators have found some of the stones that were part of the wall, the very stones these disciples are pointing at. And do you know how big these things are? They're like boxcars. They are literally 42 feet long, 14 feet wide, and 11 feet tall, weighing 600 tons. That's more, well over a million pounds. How did they get these things stacked up? I have no idea. And the disciples are looking at that saying, wow, Jesus, look at this. Wow. Herod had been in the process of renovating the temple many years at this point, and the temple was by far the most spectacular building in the world, a temple in the world at this time. So the disciples, these guys are like me, they're backwater boys, and every year when they traveled into the city, they would be in awe of the building, and they would look at the differences, the changes, the growth in the, in the wall, and they would say, wow, look at that, wow, it's amazing. So 
That's why Jesus' response to them could not have been more shocking or surprising. Jesus replied to their comments, not one of those stones will be left upon another. Those massive stones, they're all coming down. They're all going to be destroyed. Jesus, he replies to their comment in a way that they never would have expected. He was teaching them the temple was no longer to function as the center of worship. It was not to be seen as a place of sacrifice any longer. In just a few days, thousands of lambs would be sacrificed within those walls. But the genuine, real, only valuable sacrifice was going to be taking place outside the wall on the hill called Golgotha. The temple and its religious activity had now drawn to a close. Now, I can only imagine the reaction of the disciples. I wish I could have seen their face. But it it seems as though their response is to be silent. Because the book of Mark does not inform us of any conversation taking place as they walked down the Temple Mount, or as they walked through the the Kidron Valley, or up the hill to the Mount of Olives. The next conversation we see taking place is after Jesus has sat down, exactly opposite the temple. Now, it's important to understand the the hill, the Mount of Olives, is higher in elevation than the temple. So you could sit there and look directly down into the place where Jesus had just been speaking. So he goes and he sits opposite the temple. So that brings us to point number two, the promises. In verse three, the two sets of brothers come to Jesus. Peter and Andrew are brothers. James and John, brothers, they come to Jesus and they ask him privately very important questions. They're they're curious, clearly, about the prediction Jesus had just made. They're probably concerned, wait a minute, so you're telling us this great building is going to be destroyed? So they asked him two questions wrapped into one. They asked, when will this happen? And what will be the sign that it is about to take place? Now, most of the time, most of the time in the Bible, prophecy is given in part for the purpose of warning the people, telling the people, repent or God will do this. He will destroy. He will, he will do something that you will hate. So please turn and repent lest you be destroyed. But I think Robert Stein is correct when he says in his commentary, there are times when the prophet knows that there will be no repentance and that the judgment is unavoidable. In such instances, judgment prophecies function not as a warning, but as a prediction. And today, that is what we are looking at. We are looking at a prediction of what is about to happen to Jerusalem. He is predicting destruction, specifically the destruction, not just of the temple complex, but of all Jerusalem. It was inevitable. But for those who had an ear to hear what Jesus was predicting, it was avoidable. It will happen to that city, but it does not have to happen to you. Now, we simply don't have time to examine everything in this section closely, but I would like to categorize four promises here that Jesus makes to these disciples. Promise number one. In verse six, Jesus promises that there would be false messiahs that would arise. Now, we know from church history and the history specifically directly following the resurrection of Christ, that there were several false messiahs. There were pretenders that arose in that region, people who claimed to be the son of God. In fact, one of them was claimed to have even parted the uh, Jordan River. Now, did that really happen? I don't know. But Jesus says they are going to come with great power, and they are going to draw away many. 
And we know from church history that many of them were actually convinced by these false messiahs. But Jesus, he knew it was coming, and he warned the disciples right up front, expect this, teach the church to expect this. The early church understood and heard these words. The second promise is this. Not only would there be false messiahs, but Jesus also promised there was going to be major earthly turmoil. Some of it would be natural disasters. He mentions here earthquakes and famines. By the way, we know there were some very consistent and severe earthquakes and famines that took place directly following the resurrection of Christ and in that period between that and the destruction of Jerusalem. So some of it's going to be natural. But some of it and much of it was going to be national turmoil. As much as Israel hated the Romans, and they did hate the Romans, there was a certain level of comfort that came with being part of the Roman Empire. You were under what is known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, which means if anybody were to come and attack Jerusalem, the Romans would consider that attack on Rome, and they would fight with all of their brutal force against those enemies, against those foreigners. So there was a certain amount of peace that came with being part of the Roman Empire. So wars and rumors of wars were very unusual during this time. The only wars taking place were far, far away in northern Europe where the Romans were fighting the Gauls. So here, what we're seeing take place is very unusual. No one alive in Israel in this day had ever experienced a war except for the Roman soldiers, perhaps, that had been up in Europe. So here... He says there's going to be wars and there's going to be rumors of wars. And so even though the Israelites had experienced this oppression, they had never experienced war. But now Jesus promised there would be wars, there would be rumors of wars, and those would function as a sign that this is about to take place. This temple is about to be destroyed and the city that surrounds it. And as though those difficulties were not enough, Jesus promises a third challenge. He promises that there will be persecution for those who follow Christ. Verse 9 says, Be on your guard. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And then jump down to verse 11. He adds, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand about what you are to, uh, to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And his and brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. This is a promise, and it came to pass. The church was sharply persecuted after the resurrection of Christ, in part by our great apostle that we recognize, Paul. He was one of those who would kill or imprison these people. He was part of the fulfillment of this promise on both sides. So this is what Jesus meant in Matthew 10, 34, when he says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. Family members are going to rise up against one another and turn one another into the authorities because this religion of the gospel will be outlawed and you will be criminals because of it. So Jesus has promised that there would be false messiahs. He has promised that there is going to be major earthly turmoil and he has promised a great persecution. And so far, 
everything that I have said is really hard, bad news. Jesus is teaching them and informing them these things, though, for a very important reason. He is teaching them how to be faithful and how to stand firm so that when this does happen, because he promises it will, they will be able to hold fast to Christ in the midst of major trials. So here's the fourth promise that we see. And this one is beautiful. You will find in the end of verse 13 these words. But, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now that, by itself, that is incredible news. That Christ has promised, if we endure through the trials, we will be saved. Even though there is going to be massive devastation and destruction, there is a way of salvation. This has been the through line, though, of the entire section. Jesus told them back in verse 5, the very first words of this discourse. He says, see to it that no one leads you astray. That's the beginning. I'm telling this to you so that no one will lead you astray. And those were the opening lines. He bolstered that, though, in verse 9 when he commands them with this quote, Be on your guard. Watch. Don't be relaxed about this. Pay attention. Now, I can hear you saying, but that stuff, those first three promises, that sounds too difficult. Who could stand up under that kind of difficulty and not break? How could anyone be certain that they would not be led astray? What hope does anyone have to stay on their guard? But I want you to see as clear as crystal a promise that is hiding beneath the others that is so vital for us to see. It's a subtle hint at the underlying power of God as he is working in his people. Jesus said to them in verse 11, And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand. What? We're going to go to trial? We uneducated fishermen go stand before the most educated people in the world, in this region at least, and be put on trial because we are outlaws for believing the gospel, and you're telling us not to be anxious about what we're going to say? How is that possible, Jesus? Here's why. He says, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. You are going to be bolstered and given the words to say, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. What? The disciples have not yet been filled with the Holy Spirit. That won't happen till Pentecost. This Holy Spirit has not yet come to dwell within them. But Jesus is informing them beforehand, there is a great power that is going to be in you. So when I say that you need to hold fast, be on your guard, you're not doing that in your own strength. There is one within you who will do this and will work in you. And that very same Holy Spirit dwells in every person here who is saved. How can you stand fast, be on your guard, be sure that no one leads you astray? Because if you are Christ, that spirit of God dwells within you and you can stand firm, trusting that he is working in you. So how is it that Christ could expect them to stand firm? Because Christ was working through the spirit to keep them firm. Now, this message that Christ is giving to his disciples, I want you to remember that this is not to be a message of despair. They probably initially thought that the temple's going to be destroyed and began to despair. But this is a message of hope. This is a message of joy. He is saying, I'm calling you to be on your guard and even commanding them to stand firm, even when they're put on trials. But I'm telling you that when you do stand up before them, you're not standing alone. That God is with you. 
by the Spirit. So Christian, this is good news for us today. That when we experience this kind of trial, whether it's earthly trial of, I mean, an earthquake could come and destroy your home today. Guess what? You can stand firm in Christ. You could have persecution arise against us this week. We could all be imprisoned for our faith, yet we can stand firm because of Christ. How can we do that? Because the Spirit of God dwells within us. Let's move now to point number three, the final sign. Now, so far, the signs that Jesus has given, they're pretty vague, right? You can interpret them, well, there was an earthquake over there. Maybe it's about to take place. Uh, There's persecution over here. Maybe it's about to take place. Now, it's interesting. I know people who would interpret this and say, well, this is, this is future, this is still coming. I don't think that's the correct application of the text. But oftentimes the way that they perceive that the end might be coming is when they personally begin to feel persecution or harm. Uh, one of the commentators that I, that I was reading said, this is a purely narcissistic view. Basically what that means is we're ignoring the fact that the, er- the church has been persecuted constantly since its inception. There are people now being persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ all around the world. And to say, oh, I feel a little bit of persecution, the end must be near, is to ignore all of church history. So these signs are pretty vague so far. He's given us some some little details, but he hasn't said anything specific until now. Now, in verse 14, he gives them the final clue as to the timing of this impending judgment that he's speaking about. He says, quote, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now it's likely that most of us hear these words and have no idea what they mean. Abomination of desolation? What in the world is he talking about? So it's important that we really dig down and and try to grasp what Jesus is talking about. Uh, yesterday, my kids made a snowman. Uh, it was mostly like this big brown mud blob that was, you know, one big ball and then a little one on top of it. And later, I took my dog out uh, to run around in the backyard, and he saw that, not knowing what it was, and flipped out and began to panic and, and attack it like it was some kind of invading monster, abominable snowman, I guess. And I think it's important that we respond the correct way. If we don't know what something is, we're naturally going to respond inappropriately. We, we, oftentimes, I think, we just skip over it. Oh, let's just pretend that's not there. That's not the right way to approach this text. So I think it's important for us to, in, in order for us to really understand these words, to get a sense of what Jesus is saying, we're going to have to become familiar a little bit with Jewish history. So I'm going to need you right now to strap on your thinking caps because we're going to move through a lot of history with like a really brisk clip here. First of all, I need you to know that Daniel prophesied that there would be a return into Israel after the Babylonian captivity. After 70 years of being in Babylon, the Israelites would be freed, they would be released. And as we know, Daniel's prophecy did come true. And in Daniel, it also promises that there's going to be trials that take place after their return into the land. And one of those promises takes place in Daniel 11.31 when we read these words. It says, forces, shall take, shall, uh, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Okay, so what is he talking about? When did that occur? What is the event that Daniel is trying to point those people to? Now to understand that, 
we need to go to the time between our New and Old Testament. In fact, we're going to go to the time directly following the death of Alexander the Great. Now, Alexander, when he died, he died at a very young age, I believe 32 years old. And when he died, there was no plan for what was going to happen to his empire. So it was divided among four generals. One of the generals was named Seleucus, and Seleucus became the king or governor or ruler over the region called Syria, which includes Israel. So that became uh, known as the Seleucid Empire. And eventually there arose in the Seleucid Empire uh, a ruler, a king named Antiochus, or Antiochus as some would call it. That's where we get the city of Antioch. He was a Greek man, but he wanted the people of Israel to basically leave behind all of their Jewishness, all of their beliefs, all of their traditions, and essentially be Hellenized, become Greeks like him. So he was, as an arrogant man, forcing them to leave behind their religion. This guy, he was supremely arrogant. This guy took on the title of Epiphanes. Epiphanes means God made manifest. And that's what he called himself. And the devout Jews, those who continued to follow after God, they began to mock him. And they called him Antiochus Epimenes. Hopefully I'm saying that right. Which means the insane king. Well, he didn't like that very much. And as you can imagine, he was not pleased that they would not relent and give up their traditions. So he came up with what he thought to be a brilliant idea. I know what I'll do. So he took his soldiers And he entered into the temple and he went right up to the altar where the animals were to be sacrificed. And right there, he set up a temple to Zeus. And then he began to declare himself, I am Antiochus Epiphanes. I am God made manifest. And then he had his soldiers begin to slaughter pigs right there on the altar. Now, if you know the Jewish history, pigs are the supremely unclean animal. And he takes them in and begins killing them. And it creates what we now call the Maccabean Revolt. Those who were faithful Jews rejected them. They left the city. They stopped going into the temple. And then they they fought and attacked and killed off this man's army. But what I want you to see here is when we look at these words from Daniel... He tells them there is going to be something that goes into the temple and there's going to be a false altar erected there and there's going to be an abomination that makes desolate. Well, the city became desolate as they fought over it and battled. But I want you to see also the verse that comes right after that promise. You'll know it if you remember the children's song that they sang for us several months ago. The people shall know their God and stand firm and take action. That's what Daniel told them to do. When you see this abomination that makes desolate, stand firm and take action. And that's exactly what the people did. And they fought back in the Maccabean revolt. Now, jump ahead to the time of Christ here. The disciples and every Jew in the time of Christ, they absolutely understood that history that I just told you. They know more about it than I do, and they absolutely know more about it than any one of us ever would would think about. It's in their mind constantly. It happened more recently than our civil war happened in American history for them. So this inciting incident was the beginning of their greatest military victory in recent history. They know what he's talking about, the abomination of desolation. So when Jesus told them that there was going to be another abomination that would bring desolation, it would be another event like that first one. Some would say these two are the same events. Here's why I don't think that's the case. There's many reasons. Here's the simplest one to explain. Daniel says, when this happens, stand firm and take action. Jesus says, when you see this happening, flee. 
Get out of there. Do not stay in Judea. Don't even go into your house. Get out. So where Daniel commanded the people to stand firm, Jesus says, flee. Listen to the urgency. Listen to the urgency in Christ's voice with his command to get out. Look again, starting in verse 15. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been seen from the beginning of creation that God has created until now and never will be. Jesus is telling him, get out. You do not want to be near this kind of judgment. So you're probably wondering, what was the abomination of desolation? What is it that they saw? See, we know from historians and from some of the early church fathers, such as Eusebius, who we call the, the first church historian, we know that they recognized that there was a fulfillment of this prophecy. We know that they all got up and left. We even know from secular historians that when in AD 70 the, the, the Roman army came and fought against the people of Israel, we know that there were no Christians left in the city because they had all fled. Well, what was it that they saw that made them run away? And I can tell you with absolute confidence, I don't know. I have no idea what it is. Scholars are really divided. In fact, one scholar that I was reading, one commentator, he listed eight possibilities and he said, it could be this one, it could be this one, it could be this one but they're probably all wrong. We don't know exactly what they saw, but whatever it was, they knew it is time to get out. And Jesus told them, watch for the abomination that brings desolation. And then Mark inserted this little phrase here. I don't think Jesus said this, and and that's why you'll probably have parentheses in your Bible, which says, let the reader understand. You need to know what's coming. Pay attention. I'm not going to specifically state what that is, but when you see it, You will know, and you get out. In verse 28, Jesus told them, keep your eyes open for this event. He says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This is happening in your lifetimes. He is speaking to four men, and he's telling them that, that some of you are going to be here. This generation will not pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. He puts a time stamp here on this. It's going to happen within your generation. But look a little bit closer now at verse 29. I want you to see something that I think is very important to note. Now, I love the ESV. I preach out of the ESV. I study out of the ESV. I think it's one of the best, most faithful translations. I use it for my daily and personal study. However, there are some times where I think the translation misses the... Misses the mark just a little bit. And here's one of those cases. In verse 29 in the ESV, it reads like this. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. However, in the original Greek language, the word he is not to be found anywhere in that sentence. In none of the earliest manuscripts, in none of the manuscripts that we have at all, does it ever say the word he. This is one of those instances, I believe, where the interpreters inserted a word because of their own personal perspectives of these verses. What does that statement mean without it? It would read like this. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that it is near. That's what the word should read. Estin is the Greek word. It is near at the very gates. What is near? The destruction that is coming. 
Jesus is warning the disciples that those who would come after them to be part of the church, that this event is going to take place in the near future. And the appropriate response is run away. Get away, because God is sending judgment against anybody and everybody who remains here. So, what is the, what is the sign? What is the sign? Ultimately, it doesn't matter for us, because this event has taken place. This specific sign was already, uh, it was for a particular people in a particular time for an event that has already happened. So, thankfully, many believers understood Christ's command and took Uh, took heed of it and left. But right in the middle of that explanation, you might have noticed that there was a little bit of shift in gears. So we're going to shift along with him here. I want you to look now at point number four, the second coming. There is not a single place in the book of Mark where Jesus makes more either direct quotes or allusions to the Old Testament in such a short span of time. In these four verses, 24 through 27, he makes... Or he quotes or alludes to it no less than four passages from Isaiah, one verse from Ezekiel, three separate verses from Joel, two verses from Amos, and even, just for kicks, a verse from Zephaniah. I mean, he's got practically all of the prophets included here. And to simply put, we can't even begin to scratch the surface of what he's getting at in the time that we have remaining this morning. However, I would like to read these verses to you and point out and highlight one very specific, important truth. Read along with me. This is verse 24 and following. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now, notice, this is going to happen at some point after the tribulation he has just spoken about. He says, after that tribulation. So, when did this take place? Sometime after. Now, I believe that there's a pretty big gap between AD 70 and when this will take place. Uh, When will it happen? I don't know. It's still in the future. He, he doesn't seem to indicate the time distinction to them, but we know that this has not yet taken place. So, when we look at this, I want you to see that it will happen after. But I also want you to recognize that this is apocalyptic quotations. These quotes that he's given, that there's going to be fall, stars falling from the sky. Let me ask you, what does that mean? What does it mean that the stars will fall from the heavens? Does it mean that they're just going to be moving in their locations? I mean, realistically, everything is constantly in motion in space, and really everything is in motion in in relation to where we are. What does it mean that they're going to fall from heaven? When, When we look at this kind of literature, we need to see that this was used constantly in the Old Testament. Remember I talked about hermeneutics? What did it mean to the original people at this time? Well, when we look at the Old Testament, this exact language was used when Egypt fell. This exact language was used when the empire of the Assyrians fell. That it was like stars colliding in the heavens. It was like the stars falling from the heavens. This apocalyptic literature is a form of writing that is intended to be overly expressive. There's something massive happening in the world. There are monstrosities colliding. There are nations falling out of place. It is a traditional poetic way to discuss the shifting of power and destruction that is coming. However, 
Jesus had something much grander in mind than the destruction of a single king or the destruction of a single nation. He is speaking about the coming of the Son of God with power and glory. Now, at Jesus' first coming, we're you know, celebrating Christmas here, how did he arrive? He came humble and lowly, being laid in a manger, and he was born to two poor people from the middle of nowhere, and Jesus was treated terribly. He grew up in poverty. He was despised and rejected by men, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him, and we esteemed him not. He was, from all outward appearances, just a regular guy. This is the king of heaven, and he comes to earth, and he looks like you or I. The Bible says he has no beauty that we should desire him. If you were to do a lineup of him and the other 12 disciples, you wouldn't know which one is him. From an outward appearance, from a physical perspective, you would not know which one of them is the son of God. But when Christ returns, there will be no mistaking him. When Jesus returns, it is going to be with great power and with glory. And here's what I want you to notice. He will not forget those who belong to him. He promises us, and then he will send out the angels and gather the elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. That's everywhere. There is nowhere that that does not include. Jesus is informing us through this word that his earlier promise still stands. Those who endure to the end will be saved. So brothers and sisters, stand firm in the spirit. No power of hell, no scheme of man could ever pluck me from his hands. So till he returns or calls me home, Here in the power of Christ, I stand. Which brings us now to our fifth and our final point, which is the enduring command. Now, it seems really easy for people to get, you know, like excited and worked up about the future. We all want to know about the future. We want to know about the future of our job. I would love to know what's going to happen in my children's lives. I would love to know what happens in my future. We want to know future in general, but specifically when it comes to theology, we want to know about the return of Christ. We want to know, like the disciples, hey, Jesus, when is this happening exactly? And what are the signs that is going to take place? But please understand why Jesus was preaching this message. It was in part to inform the disciples of clear and specific events that were about to take place in Jerusalem in their lifetimes. But in the midst of all of it, our loving Savior also graciously spoke beyond their time in words that still ring in our ears. However... He did not desire for us to read this and then to approach the second coming in the same manner as we approach the first. I'm sorry, not the first coming, but the destruction of Jerusalem. I really appreciate how James Edwards puts this in his commentary. He says, The disciples and believers ever since want to know the future, but Jesus directs them unflinchingly to the present. He is going to command them here, Stay awake. Stay awake. It is an ongoing command that holds true for every one of us in this room. Stay awake. But before we examine what this means exactly, first, let's consider what it doesn't mean. In verse 32, Jesus said, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Let me repeat that just in case anybody missed this, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Nobody knows. Now, every few years, some crackpot will develop a new formula 
by which they think they have discovered when exactly the end of time is going to happen. When will Jesus return? The one we probably all remember the most is Harold Camping, who claimed that Christ would return on May 21st, 2011. That was not his first prediction. There are many others, but he has since passed away and will not be making another prediction. There were many people that heard that and listened to family radio. And they, I've even read about a man who sold everything he had. He took out as many credit cards as he could get, and he purchased billboards all across the United States informing people, May 21st is coming. Get right with Jesus because he is coming back. May 22nd came, and he was in great debt. This man had trusted in this person, Harold Camping, and forgotten the reality that no one knows the day or the hour. Christ has not yet come. But even when people don't put a specific date on the return of Christ, People still are looking for the signs. Oh, well, that person's the president. Jesus must be coming back soon. That person's now the president. Jesus must be coming soon. Oh, we got this person as a president. Maybe he'll wait four years. I don't know. People have this different perspective of when Christ is coming. And there are all sorts of signs they see and they look at it. And I just have to say that Christians tend to be enamored with eschatology. We tend to, to, to have a, a propensity away from these ground foundational things and, and move towards the study of end things. And some people, they don't give a date to it, but they, they draw maps and they create charts and they become obsessed with what it will look like at the end of times. And as you know, there are many, many, many books. If you go to a Christian bookstore, you'll go to the section and it's like the second coming. Like half the store is about the return of Christ and it's all people with their own perspectives that are very little rooted in scripture. No one knows the time of his returning. People get really specific about this and they get really agitated when you, sometimes when you disagree with them. It's like a cat with its head stuck in the toilet. They freak out when you don't agree with every little piece of their perspective of theology. But please understand and read these words carefully. Jesus is not calling us to be detectives who are searching around every rock to determine the exact date of his return. He is calling us to be not detectives, but disciples. He's telling us to be faithful. And here's how he said it in his own words, starting in verse 33. Be on guard. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his own work. Remember this, his servants in charge, each with his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake awake. That is the enduring command of this passage for us. Stay awake. Be faithful. There are a lot of different servants with all sorts of different jobs. What is our responsibility? It is not to watch and look under everything, but the doorkeeper to stay awake is his job. It is to be faithful in doing the business that Christ has given us to do. You and I are supposed to live every moment of our lives as though Jesus was going to return at that second. We are to live every moment of our lives as though Jesus is our king. There is never a time when we have, well, Jesus might not come back. Let's just take the next year or so off to kind of have my, my time. No, this is his time, not ours. So live for Christ. Stay awake. Continue on in faithful service. 
I want to close here by saying I've, I've spoken a lot of, of words. We've covered a lot of ground in, in a huge chapter this morning. I have not yet said a single word to those who are unbelievers in the room. So I just want to take a moment to address you. And I want to inform you that these words of hope for the believer do not ring true for you unless you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Because what we are speaking about here is impending judgment. That there is going to be a time when Christ returns and where he destroys his enemies under his feet and where he protects and saves the elect. So I have to say to you today, if you are here not knowing Jesus Christ, I am so glad you're here. We love you. And I want you to hear the gospel this morning that Jesus Christ, this man who made these promises, also promised that if you will repent and believe, you will be saved. So I want you to know Jesus Christ today. He came to die for sinners, unworthy people like you and I, so that we could be with God forever. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, please don't walk out of this building without talking to me or somebody you've seen up here today. We want to tell you more about what it means to know Jesus Christ because we never want you to experience the terrible impending judgment that he promises is coming. But for those of us who do know Christ, we have every reason to rejoice, even in persecution and trial, because he will never leave us or forsake us. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you that even in even in the midst of persecution and trial and torment and and turmoil, God, that you are king ruling over all things. God, I praise you for your son who died on the cross in place of sinners. And I thank you that he gave us these words. Lord, I thank you that the people of the early church heard him and left Jerusalem. I thank you, Lord, that we have the command, the enduring command to stay awake. Lord, help us. We cannot do that in our own strength. We need you. Without the spirit indwelling us, We would be like the disciples who you told to stay awake that night when Jesus was betrayed and they kept falling asleep. God, we don't want to. Lord, the the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Lord, help us. We need you. So, Father, please give us joy, give us delight in honoring you, and give us the strength to keep on doing it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.